hopelessness. Have you ever felt that in your soul? Hopelessness. When you've tried so hard or perhaps for so long, but it feels like you are a hamster on a wheel. You're not really making any progress. It feels like there's so much more that's pulling you back than a wind in your back that's pushing you forward. Hopelessness, it, it gets to the best of us. Hopelessness might, might very well be the, the most powerful tool in the enemy's hands. When he causes us to look at all that God is and all that he has said, but we see it with eyes that are blurry. We don't see them clearly. But we look at all that is hard and difficult and against us. And we don't merely see it clearly. We, we feel that in our very soul of souls. Well, hopelessness shows up big in the book of Acts. The, the book that is all about how the gospel will get from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, when we think about the first century church, oftentimes we quote the people there as, as though it was all rosy. As, as though they just had it all together. They, they had such clear faith in God. They never really experienced the kind of discouragements that we experience. That's, that's so far from the truth. And the passage of scripture we are going to look at today is positioned in a very key place in the narrative of the book of Acts. You notice it's Acts 27. Sometimes we don't consciously think about what's really going on as this story is coming to an end. Rome is where the story ends. Rome is where the story culminates. That, 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 that pattern that Christ laid out for his disciples, you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. In the book of Acts, that's Rome. How did the gospel make it there? Was it through a people who were so resolute, unflinching, undoubting, just all the way to the very end? Or did they experience the same things that we experience today? Here's what I'm seeking to convince you of today as we're looking at this particular portion. I'm here to tell you to take courage. Take courage. For everything will work out exactly as the Lord has ordained. Take courage. You notice our story, the way it begins. The story begins by uh, this little phrase, and it was decided, in chapter 27, and it was decided. It was decided particularly that they would set sail for Italy. That's where Rome exists, just in case you have your geography a bit confused. That's where we're headed, Italy. Our decision has been made. It's kind of a big deal because Paul has been stuck in Jerusalem for quite a while. 
you, you could say things have not gone according to plan, in one sense. Paul resolved to go to Rome all the way back in chapter 19. Do you want to peek back there and see how, how long ago this was? Look, at, look in your Bibles at chapter 19 and verse 21. I know, you'll have to flip through a lot of pages from chapter 27 all the way back to chapter 19. In chapter 19, it says this in verse 21. My apologies, I'm reading from the, um, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Just translate for yourselves with the version that you have on your laps. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go where? To Jerusalem. After I have been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. And the minute he says that, everything else is about that journey. Jerusalem, then Rome. Rome with a layover in Jerusalem. But do you notice how long it takes? Did you notice that? 19 and then 20. 20, then 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, before 27. Folks, there are many years in between there, trial after trial, at least two years in imprisonment in Jerusalem. Things have not gone according to plan as far as that's concerned, but now it has been said that it was decided for them to go. So it's a pretty massive decision here as far as the narrative of the book of Acts. But question, who really decided that they should set off for Rome. You see here, when I'm, I'm urging you from this particular portion of scripture to, to take courage, it's important we ask ourselves, why should we take courage? We're trying to avoid the Christianese of, of simply saying, it will be okay. Question, how? Why will it be okay? Because it does not look okay, it does not sound okay. It does not feel okay. So I need something more than just merely well wishes from a card saying it will be okay. Look at the very beginning of this story. Her story has already lined out for us a little strand that we're able to see that the reason it will be okay, the reason Paul can take courage and we can take courage as we're seeking to participate in the work that God is doing in the world to advance the gospel is because he rules sovereignly over all the affairs of man and is guiding them accordance to, in accordance to his divine counsel to the ends that he determined from before the foundations of the world, including Paul sailing to Italy. Look with me again to chapter 23 and verse 11 and, and see what happened there. Paul is in Jerusalem and he is experiencing a few challenges. He's, he, he was almost torn to pieces by the Jews by this point. He went in, he bore witness um, to the truths about Jesus. They hated him for it. They were tearing him to pieces. The guards lifted him up above the rioting crowds so that the people don't tear him apart. They, they have now put him in prison. And in 23.11 it says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, 
for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here's how the story is going. Jesus Christ told them a long, 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 long time ago, like chapter 1, verse 8, long ago, that they will be witnesses to him. Paul comes in later in this story. But that these disciples of Jesus will be witnesses to him. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Tons of difficulty and trial on that particular way. Paul, discouraged, disheartened, bruised, and beaten up in prison. Jesus showing up beside him and telling him, take courage, don't give up, don't lose hope. You will bear witness about me in Rome also. So you see how when you get into chapter 27 and verse 1, and it is telling us it was decided, it truly is being decided that he gets on a ship, but in reality, it was decided a long, long time ago. By the God who is governing all things in accordance to the counsel of his own will to the ends that he has determined that the gospel will be proclaimed to the uttermost parts of the world. And so the narrative continues and it tells us some few things we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a company of three here they are, Luke, Aristarchus, and Paul. And then it adds a little piece of information, and Julius basically liked Paul. That's how the stories go. God is overseeing absolutely everything. That little addition is going to be important for us. Notice how the narrative progresses. We are told in verse 9, after they've set out, things start looking ugly. Sorry, up, up, up in verse 4. And putting out to sea, there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. What lies on the end of the voyage? God's purpose that Paul would testify to truths about him. What meets Paul at the very beginning of this voyage? Something that is against them. That doesn't really change as the journey continues. You notice in verse 6, there a centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and they put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with what? Difficulty of Nidus. More challenges are awaiting them. And verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which there was a city of Lycia. Verse 9, such, such, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Here's the progress, guys. Here's how things are moving. Things have moved from a point where they felt like the winds were against them. As the journey continues, he, he says that things have gotten Difficult. They arrived with the difficulty off of Nidus. And then they moved from being difficult to being dangerous. And then from Paul's speech, he basically says things will not just merely be dangerous, things could potentially become deadly. That's the progress of the journey so far. Difficult, dangerous, and now potentially deadly. It's not looking up as far as this journey 
is concerned? Well, they don't listen to him, is a summary here. We, there's nothing from reading here that should make us think that uh, Paul was being prophetic in what he was saying. It sounds like Paul is simply quoting for them common knowledge of the seas. Paul, if you read chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, uh, he's been here before and bought the t-shirt, right? He's been to sea multiple times. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. He's, he has seen this movie before. He knows how it ends, and it's not good. He mentions here since the fast was already over. That's, that's something that would happen late September, early October, right? The Day of Atonement. The, the placing of the moon in the skies would determine that. And, and typically, when it comes to seafaring, uh, once that time passes, the seas would typically become more dangerous. They would seize all sailing and wait until the next season in the next year and then begin again because that was like the hurricane season. So this is commonly known truths. So everybody knows them. Paul knows them and he's saying, guys, this is not smart. We are cutting it too close. We very well might die if we attempt to put out to sea again. But you see, the place where they had landed was, was not that good of a place to spend all winter in. And so they look at the, the island of Crete and they say, you know what, we're on this spot of the island, but, but it would be much better to spend winter in that spot of the island. So if we set out and we keep close to the edges of the island, things might be okay. It's their reasoning here. Notice verse 13. It says, when the south wind blew gently, Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and they sailed along Crete. Paul is giving them reasoning. Don't do it. But, but they say, it will be okay. Do you know why it will be okay? Look at the winds. You see how they make their decision? When the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose. It's, it's, it's many ways the way we reason, guys. I mean, I know we read our Bibles and we're reformed. But this is really how we judge the future. By looking at the present. Amen? How do you determine how things will be? By looking at the way things are. Things are looking pretty nice. Things are looking up. I can't foresee any harm or damage. Look at the winds. They are blowing nicely. Let's go do it. The scriptures, especially in this portion, are arguing for a different way of thinking about the future. The reason Paul is being asked to take courage is because Jesus has spoken. The reason he's being asked to take courage that things will work out is because of exactly what God has said. Not because of how winds are looking. Not because of present circumstances. That way of looking at the present and the future does not belong to the children of God. That is not how the mission moves forward. The story basically is disastrous. You heard our brother Liam read. He had a particularly stronger Scottish accent as he read today. Or maybe I was just standing at the back. I had nothing of what he read. But I'm sure the rest of you followed along just finely. 
you, you see how bad stuff gets, right? As soon as they set out, verse 14, says that a tempestuous wind, this is ESV, apologies for the big words, called the Northeaster, struck down from land. As soon as they left, everything went south. Not much confidence. Not much predictability in how things will play out. When it's like, a, oh, the day looks nice, things will be fine. As soon as they set out, things don't look fine. It's like the weather I'm seeing here. Sunny one minute, rainy the next minute. The northeaster is a, is, is a little typhoon that comes down from land and it hits them. And you see what it does immediately? They're trying to stay right next to the shore, but the typhoon hits them and it pushes them right out in the middle of the sea. You read the story for yourself and you see how they try to do everything that they can to remain on course, but they cannot. They've tossed the, the little cranes they would have to load cargo on off, off board to make the ship lighter. It's not helping. They cannot control this. They have used all of their skills, used supports to underguard the ship. It's not helped them. And verse 17 says they were thus driven along. Storm has taken control. They are out of control. Verse 18, since we were violently, violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. That's the crane that would load stuff on top um, of, of the ship with their own hands. Pretty heavy act here that they are pulling off. Verse 20 is important. Read it in your own version here. And capture the sense of it. When neither sun, nor moon, nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is how the gospel gets to Rome. Did you catch it? Who's writing this? Who's the author of the book of Acts? Dr. Luke himself. This is, this is, this is not the sailors saying they lost hope. Those guys lost hope a long time ago. This is godly Luke. I mean, he's authored about a quarter of the Bible, of, of the New Testament. And they look out and they basically say, we are dead. All hope. I mean, that little verse, saints, is as dark as it gets. That is sinking to the very bottom of the bottle called hope and scraping and you're finding nothing still. Well, that's when we get our answer, which is what this whole message is about. God appears at that particular point and he speaks to them. The very words that we need. It says in verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up amongst them and said, men, I told you so. Some of your versions might read that. It's really what the meaning is. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. You see verse 22? See it clearly? Here is the point. Yet 
now. Contrary to every single thing you're seeing around you. <laughs> Contrary to the storm. Contrary to the fact that you have run out of things to do. Do what? Take heart. Are you seeing how different that is from the sailors? The sailors look out and they say, oh, it looks like a nice day. It will be okay. Let's set sail. Paul, it's the exact opposite. It is as bad as it possibly could be. And Paul tells them, take heart. Why, Paul? Why would any of us take heart on a day like this? When Luke himself, your companion, a fellow believer, is saying that all cause for hope has been lost. In fact, the way it phrases it here is kind of poetic. Was at last abandoned. At last abandoned. We're like, we, we clung to hope, we clung to hope, we clung to hope, and finally it just kind of slipped through our fingers. And we eventually realized we have nothing else to hold on to. And Paul is saying, yes, even then, take courage. Why? So listen to Paul's logic. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told. Take heart, Take heart, take heart. Don't give up. You notice how that thread of getting to Rome is so important here. All the way back in chapter 19, he resolved to go to Rome. Chapter 23 again, it shows up. You must testify for me in Rome. We're in the middle of the ocean, it's about to all come to an end. You will testify to me in Rome. God is accomplishing his ultimate purposes here. And nothing is going to stop him. So I ask you again the question. Are you familiar with losing hope? Do you know anything about this experience? As a child of God, your God has put you on a path that does not merely end in your salvation here on earth. But it ends in glory at the very end of it. The God who has called you to himself has called you to be a part of what he is doing and accomplishing in this world. And what he is assuring you and I is this. My purposes for you in this world and in the world to come will not be thwarted by anything. I will say that again. What your God is saying is that his purposes for all those who follow him, both here on earth and in the world to come, cannot be thwarted by anything. And so they are being asked, we are being asked, to follow him steadily on that path. As those whose lives do not belong to them, but they belong to the one who lived and died for them. And the one who has called them to himself. And he continues to say, come follow me. Your life is not in the hands of your circumstances. 
Your life is in my hands. And everything will be exactly as I have ordained. Well, after that, everything becomes better, doesn't it? Nope. Uh, things actually become a bit worse. Well, a whole lot worse. You see how things go. When verse 27 here says, The 14th night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight, they suspected that they were nearing land. So the land is getting closer and closer and closer. They're measuring to the bottom of the ocean or of the sea. It's, it's showing them that, that clearly we're coming closer and closer to land. Now, the problem there is they're afraid of hitting the reefs and making shipwreck and everybody dying. And so it says in verse 29, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Ever been there? Praying for day to come? That's the ambition here. When will the sun rise? They're just counting the seconds until the sun comes up. You see, it's showing us clearly here that being in God's will does not mean we will not suffer. Another way of saying it. Suffering in the life of the saints does not mean that they are not in God's will. That's not how Christians discern. Am I in the will of God or am I not in the will of God? Let me look at my circumstances. You know who does that? It's the seafarers who do that. That's how they roll. The day looks nice, clearly, clearly. The Lord must be in this. Let's go do it. For the saints... God speaks and things get worse sometimes, which is certainly the case here for Paul. I'll summarize how this proceeds because it's really the same thing of things keep getting worse and worse and worse. Gets to a point where some people are trying to run away. Paul helps to stop them. Verse 34, Paul does an absolutely daring thing. He eats food. That's a daring thing when you're hopeless. Uh, if you've experienced any type of depression, right, you understand this verse well. That's how, just like, what's the point of anything? That's how bad this is for the sailors. Paul has to convince them, just try, eat something. It's really elaborately articulated. Because that's how dis discouraged they are. And how does Paul convince them? God told me, not a single hair on your, God told me, God spoke. God, whatever God has said is what will come to pass, take heart. What does it look like to take heart? Eat some food. Not some daring act of, uh-uh, eat. Try to do that. That's where Paul is at. This is Paul shepherding the people on the ship. As the story continues, the little thing about the centurion liking Paul plays out, right? You saw that as the reading was going on? Because, because they get stuck. People start jumping overboard. The soldiers are afraid of losing the prisoners, and so they decide to kill everybody. And because Julius here likes Paul, small details, his life gets spared. How does the gospel get to Rome? A centurion liked Paul. 
God is overseeing in accordance with providence every single detail of what they need. They might be in the ocean, but they are not out of control. Don't look there. Look at the God who made the sea. The God who flung the stars in the skies. The God who says the earth is his footstool. The God who rules sovereignly over absolutely every detail on earth. He's the one who's put that in the story here. Paul's life gets saved. And they end up on shore in Malta. Not, a, not a, an island made up of cannibals, but they just happen to land on an island filled with friendly islanders. In fact, it's an island that is right on their way to Rome, if you look at the map. So that what the storm that took their little sheep and was tossing it wherever it wished, was leading them to, was exactly the direction they needed to go. There's a God who is in control of all of this. Notice this little brief detail, and then we wrap up here. You know the story of a viper that bites Paul on the island? It's kind of a random story. Kind of comical, though. They've shown the people an unusual kindness. Look at chapter 28. Verse 3 says, When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now you see what's happening again. He must be a murderer. You know why? Let's read the tea leaves. Let's read the palm on his hand. Let's read the signs. Bad things happen. It must mean God is out to get you. Amen? That's how you discern life. He must be a murderer. Continue reading the story. He, verse 5, however, shook off the creature into the, of the, into the fire and suffered no harm. They sat there waiting, looking at him. I can see those guys. Little islanders staring. Anytime now. He's about to die. He's a murderer. Bad guy. He continues to live. The guy doesn't die. And so when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come upon him, they changed their mind and said that he was a god. Seeing how they function? How do you discern things? You look at the signs. Snake bites them, murderer. He's not dying, God. Saints, that's not how you've been called to live your life. You've not been called to live your life by looking at the weather and deciding whether God loves you today. It's a bit rainy. Things are a bit hard. Somebody doesn't like me. It must mean something terrible is happening, so I lose hope. I get discouraged. I give in to despair because of my circumstances. The author here is literally making a mockery of those who choose to live their lives like that. By looking at external things and declaring what God is saying so that, so that the minister who is being blessed in, in, in one way, it must mean the favor of God is upon him and the minister who is having a hard go at it, it must mean that God is against him. Or the saint who is, who is 
parenting in a certain way and things are going a certain way must mean what? That is not how the saint is called to go. We have been called to put our confidence and our hope on the basis of the promises of God. For everything will turn out exactly as God has said they will. Is that where you look typically when you get discouraged? Let me ask you again. Are you discouraged? What are you looking at? The enemy would have you to not come to church on a Sunday morning because you're discouraged and not participate in the work of the gospel going on right here in this church. Because this is missions right here. You know that, right? Missions isn't just going out to Burma. Burma is how you'd say it, I guess. Or Africa. And evangelize the natives of Africa. That's not the only way to do missions. This is making disciples. Welcoming a visitor at the door. Smiling at the person sitting next to you. Discipling someone else. The enemy would so discourage you so that you'd give up on doing that. What's the point of going to church this morning? Just sleep in. What's the point of fighting my sin? I keep failing at it. I just don't seem to be making any progress. It's been years. Just give in. Just make a profession of it. Guys, that is not the Holy Spirit speaking to you. What God says instead is what he has determined to do for all of his children is to get them safely home is to cause them to continue to advance on the path that he has called them until they arrive at the end of that journey, where they shall perfectly be to the praise of his glory for the rest of eternity. So, brothers and sisters, I urge you to take courage on the basis of all of the promises that God has given to you. He's the one who has promised you that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Take courage because of that. He said that to you. He's the one who has said to you that all things will work together for the good of those who love him. That's your promise to you. Take courage on the basis of that reality. He's the one who has promised that even now, even when you cannot pray for yourself, because you don't know what to pray, He's the one who has promised you that he is even now praying perfect prayers for you. The Spirit himself is raising up to the Father utterances. The Son himself is praying perfect prayers to the Father for you. Take courage on behalf of this. He's the one who has promised, this is Jesus speaking, that even if they kill you, they will not harm a single hair on your head. I know it's a difficult promise to figure out. But it simply means that even death itself will not derail God's good purposes for you. It didn't derail the purposes for, for the individual who's a member of your church who passed away recently that I heard you talk about this morning. Nothing can defeat the saint because God has purpose to accomplish his work in and through them. So do not yield to that. If you're not a believer and you're here today, would you hear that the message that we are proclaiming here is singular? To simply not put confidence in yourself, but to put your confidence solely in another. And that is God himself. He asks you to look to yourself and to see you can bring him nothing. You cannot impress this God with your own 
strong commitment on your feet. You come as you are. And at the very heart of the gospel, there is a simple yielding, a giving up to God, a saying there's nothing I can do. I have made a mess of my life. All I can do is simply cling to you. And that's why you need Jesus. He came to do it all for us. He did not come to put the yoke on us. He lived the life you could not live. He died the death that you deserve. So that now he can invite you to come to him and to simply cling to him in faith and trust in him. That is what the gospel is. And we pray that you would not leave this place without doing so this very way. Father, we ask that you might aid us towards those ends. That we who are your little children, who are so afraid of the dark, that you would speak to us again and that you might allow for faith and courage to rise in the place of hopelessness and despair so that we would be those who would continue to hold on as we wait to see you work out your purposes in our lives and through us. We pray this for your glory, through your Son. Amen.